Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, you're listening to the High Performance Podcast. Welcome once again to another episode that I hope is going to inspire you, challenge you, uplift you, leave you feeling good for whatever is ahead of you today. Um, As always, Damien and myself love it when you share your thoughts with us about the podcast. You can do that um, via social media or you can leave us a review wherever you normally get your podcasts. If you can rate the pod as well, that makes a real difference to us. Um, We've had a message here from Eric's Job via Apple Podcasts in Norway says, thanks for making this podcast. Every episode leaves me motivated and inspired for my work as a youth football coach. Your guests are absolutely fantastic as well. For me, the episode with Phil Neville was especially interesting. Well, Eric's job and many other people, I think you're going to enjoy this week's episode of the High Performance Podcast. Here's what's in store. I don't want a beautiful family. I want players that can rely on each other when they go out on the pitch that are going to be tough and back each other up at the right moments. And that, as I say, that doesn't look like the beautiful family. And that's life. You know, lots of things in my family, without going into detail, that are not perfection. That's life. But you just try and do your best. Oh, I can't wait for you to hear this one. It's a guest that we've wanted to have on the pod for so long and you are going to be amazed by the things that you hear over the next hour or so. Just a quick reminder, you can also find us on YouTube as well. Just look for the High Performance Podcast channel. You can follow us uh, across Instagram at High Performance. You can find Damien at Liquid Thinker. I'm at Jake Humphrey. Um, And as always, this podcast simply wouldn't be possible without the brilliant friends of ours at Lotus Cars. You can find them on social media at Lotus Cars. Um, check out their website their cars are stunning they're hand built in my home county of Norfolk they are the epitome of high performance um, and Lotus we can't thank you enough for being part of the high performance podcast journey talking of the podcast it's time for this week's episode so settle back maybe grab a notepad and pencil because there's so many takeaways from this week's episode of the high performance podcast Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey. You're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. Now, everyone needs a professor in their life and mine is also a psychologist, an author, not a bad co-host either. Um, Damien, as someone who loves the game of football and has studied the game of football, I imagine you're bursting with questions today. I am very much. Um, I read a quote from this individual that said he likes people that are pretty straight talking and blunt. So uh, I'll leave it at that to say I'm very much looking forward to it. I think he's on the right podcast, don't you? Let's get going then and welcome a man who won everything he could as a player. 11 major titles in 13 years with Chelsea. He's a club legend. He remains their top scorer. And for the past year, he's managed the club he loves as well. As well as that, he's travelled. He's written books. He's experienced heartache and loss. He's been celebrated. He's been criticised. He's a husband. He's a father. Yet through it all, without high performance, nothing would have been the same for him. So welcome to the podcast, Frank Lampard. Frank, nice to have you with us. Thank you. Good to be here. So... What is high performance? Ooh, um, hard work. Uh, I think anything that you, in anything you do in life, I was fortunate enough to be brought up in um, 
pretty comfortable circumstances looking back, but given a, a huge work ethic uh, and probably a message that anything I wanted to do or achieve in life started with hard work. And I think that rings true in everything I've done and I see it around me in, in how I work. On top of that, I would say, well, of course, talent, which is always pretty subjective. Objective, I got, I got called a, a player that made the most of my talents, which is like a backhanded compliment if yeah. ever you hear one, but I get that too, even when I sort of would look at myself. And then I think that the last one, which is for me, which I think was a big factor, is intelligence. And I don't mean to say I'm intelligent, that would just sound stupid to say that way, but I, I mean in terms of how you approach your goals and how you want to get to them. For instance, in football, I would say it's how you train smart, how you think smart, how you prioritise what the things you need to do to get to as high up as you can be. And I think that's certainly something I feel very mirrored in my playing career to my management career and how I see it. Well, let's start there then. I'm really interested to know where that intelligence came from because there'll be people listening to this podcast Mm. who want to be successful. They want to make the most of their talents. Mm. They want to live their dreams and achieve their ambitions. Mm. And to do that, they need the intelligence to know what to do. Mm. Where did that come from for you? Um, I, I think when I go back to the beginning and, uh, and I talked about the comfortable circumstances, I, I think I was fortunate in terms of when my career went because I had a, a father who was a f- football player. So as I grew up, he was a coach at that point. And then a mother who was incredibly supportive in, her, in how she brought me up and almost gave me the, the, the nicer touches and my dad gave me the, the harder touches. But I think my dad, when it came to football, was very open to making me aware of what my shortcomings were at the time. Pace body shape, um, left foot, head in, whatever. And so I feel like as I, as I grew up, I, I, had, I was always listening to that. And, and I carried that through my career, even when I was playing probably at the top of my game or as, much, as close to the top as I got, I was aware of what I felt were deficiencies. And I just attacked them in the only way I could, which was how I trained, how I thought about them. Um, and so that's when I say intelligence again, I don't mean it as in uh, getting top marks or anything. It's just how I tried to approach things because I, I felt like I was always open to to self-criticism and then, okay, how do I not just look at what I'm not good at, but how do I make it better? So can I ask you about your mum and dad then? Because reading about your background, it seems like a bit of a yin and yang of your parents. Your dad was very driven and focused in his own career and he passed on those attributes to you and yet your mum does seem to have been more nurturing and developed the softer side of you. So... One of the things that I read, a quote that you'd said, the piece of advice your mum had passed on was you needed to learn to be kinder to yourself. Mm. The yin and yang's perfect because my dad came from a very, he had a tough upbringing, much tougher than mine. He lost his father when he was very young and uh, had to fight to become a professional footballer. And he kind of carried that demeanor, very old school, very, very strong, would tell you, you know, I remember driving home from Sunday morning games and I've said this before, but... Uh, he would be sort of shouting at me in the car. Looking back, I was like, I don't understand how you can be shouting at me when I was like 12, 13 years of age. And then I'd get home and I'd be crying and my mum would be the one that would bring me, I don't know, my, my lunch or a cake or something. That's probably why I was a chubby kid. But she would be the, the, the one that would settle me down. And so I think I'd like to think that I took both of those sort of sides of it in my, in my professional career. I got driven by my dad in that tough way. But had my mum given me those sort of moments and... I remember as I got older, my mum would always be the one, because I'm quite 
reactive. If you know, if I if I take criticism when I was playing, I'd want to say something back. I'm a bit like that in life. And my mum was always the one to say to me, "Just rise above it." I remember saying that all the time: "Rise above, rise above." And when I was younger, I couldn't quite understand it as much as I probably think about it now. And I still don't always rise above it. <laughs> don't get me wrong; I, I'm reactive still. But when you have those moments, sometimes you think about mum's words, and probably my dad's actions were probably what kind of uh, moulded me in a, in a footballing sense for sure, but in a life way as well. Yeah, one of the things that we we talk about a lot on this podcast is resilience and giving your children resilience to deal with the challenges that that are in front of them. At the time, it sounds like it was quite difficult and painful to be shouted at by your dad and to be given some home truths. Do you think on reflection, that was him instilling the resilience in you? So when you got to the challenges of professional football, you were able to draw on the experiences of sitting in the back of that car as a 12-year-old and cope with what came your way? I think he would claim that was the plan. Do you not think so? <laughs> no, I, I actually think it was just him. Right. And um, if there was a nice fallout from it for me as I got older, it did probably make me a bit tougher. And I had some tougher experiences. as I got on the footballing ladder at West Ham. But with, with my dad, I, I think he generally reacted how he saw fit at the time. I, I, I felt like, and I, and I look back, that he was not reliving his football career through me, but... He'd done it. He'd fought to be this, you know, West Ham's left back for 15, 20 years. And he himself used to talk about his deficiencies that he'd had when he was younger and he used to use running spikes and all these great old stories that your dad sort of tells you. And I think he took me as a bit of a project as a son to try and see if he could make me into a professional footballer. I didn't really cut loose from that feeling with my dad until my mid-20s, really, of that or must impress dad when it wow. comes to football. I used to remember looking up in the stands at, at West Ham or in my early Chelsea days and... And I think what he would have thought. And uh, I needed to really grow out of that by that, by that point. So, I, yeah, I don't know how he planned it. I think it was just how he was. So what led you to cut those ties that you stopped trying to impress him? I think it was just my development. And, and I think, as I see it, I, I turned from being a bit of a boy to a man. Uh, I think it was a bit like uh, I, re- I relied on that. Because my dad was quite dominant of me in, in the footballing sense, and actually in life, to be honest, I became a little bit reliant on that. You know, I, it was like follow his word and his lead. And then when I moved across to Chelsea, started playing for England, started probably gaining some success, I kind of thought, actually, no, no. When I thought everything that Dad said was right was when I was 12. And actually, some things I don't agree with, some things I don't see the same as he sees them. Maybe that started to, you know, look at my mum's side then or different things in life. And I actually started to get, be my own person, really. And I probably um, moved moved away and I don't want to make it sound like a big breakup it's not but um, in my professional life I started to feel differently do you, do you know when you were getting criticism when you were breaking into the West Ham team and there was that those sort of um, accusations of nepotism because mm. your uncle was the manager and that, there's that famous scene isn't there where uh, fans forum Harry kind of defends your honour against a fan that's, mm. that's criticising you don't you think that you would have seen all that and been aware of all that at a really young age did your dad's criticism at an even younger age not help you in that situation? Because you think, well, I've seen all this before. I've, I've had it on a much more personal level from, from my dad, so I can deal with this. Or I'm just interested to know where the ability to cope with that came from because so many people cannot cope with external criticism. Yeah. It, it maybe did. I think it possibly did in that sense. Um, it felt very different at the time. Yeah. In fact, it made my dad, uh, my relationship with my dad slightly different at the time because it was the first time he kind of flipped and realised I was getting a lot of uh, stick pressure from outside and he became softer to it and, and, and defended me. My mum played a huge role at that point because I was 17, 18 and you know, I was just sort of moving out of home, I think got my own flat but at times I would be really, really down about 
warming up and getting pelts from West Ham fans. I'm much more um, reflective on it now and calmer. I wrote a book when I was much in my mid-20s and I wanted to react and I wanted to put the story straight and all that stuff. I wish I'd never done it now because it was definitely something that shaped me. But And that period at West Ham definitely helped me as I went through football and the trials of playing for Chelsea and the good and the bad and the England, which is obviously brings bad when you don't make it through World mm. Cup quarterfinals and stuff like that. Those early days of West Ham days definitely shaped me. I'm, I'm thankful for them now and, uh, and I'm also thankful for the support I did get, but as I say, particularly for my mum at that point. That book that you described, I mean, I think that you give some really quite powerful examples about of how visceral and vile some of the abuse you were getting mm. is and I think you recount some of those instances of mm. um, there was a guy in the director's box behind your mum and your auntie mm. that would make a point of abusing you for their benefit. Mm. And... When I was reading that book, it, it, the, it shook me that you were almost an early pioneer of what a lot of people get now on social media, mm. the abuse there, but you were getting it before social media was a thing. Yeah. Do you think that that helps you now as a manager of this next generation that that, that you can empathise with them a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, it certainly does. I, I do empathise with them and I'll be very quick to, to speak on that level because when you've experienced something like that, it looks different, as you say, in the modern day. Um, but when you've experienced it, it, it all feels the same. And... Unfortunately, now every player will get it um, to what, uh, whatever period of your career it may be. Um, and when you're a young player, you can look bulletproof or give off the impression of being bulletproof, but nobody is. So, yeah, I'm very quick to try and support players on that. It's difficult. I'm, I'm very pleased that my career timed its run <laughs> early and I didn't hit the real heights of social media because if you see it, you have to deal with it and it can be very detrimental for sure. There's a lovely story that you tell about that period where there was a, you describe a young 14 year old lad that used to abuse you on the yeah, bench and yeah. then you went into a bank and his mum told you she was a big West Ham fan and then you met her outside the ground and it was the 14 year old lad that yeah. abused you regularly. And yeah. there's a lovely bit where, where you speak about that phrase you said that your mum had taught you that you rose above it mm. like it, it, it made me laugh when I read that you said mm. that you you considered telling her that her son smoked and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and getting him into trouble and you said yeah. but I remember that I had to rise above it yeah I so did. so would you explain about that process of where you learned that emotional control mm. because you say you're reactive but you obviously weren't in every situation yeah, no, that was classic of that period because I remember going in the bank all the time and the woman didn't really divulge much to me. And then this one time she did and she said, I'm going to bring my boys mad on West Ham. I expected this, you know, young, sort of really nice kid coming in with a West Ham shirt on an old tiny top or something. And it turned out to be this kid that sat just behind the dugout and absolutely ruined me. It had literally been the week before. He ruined me, swore at me, finger went up, everything. And uh, so it was like, uh, I suppose, you know, like the more you experience that thing, a lot of that stuff I think can feel worse when you hear it from a distance. I remember my sisters used to come to games and say things to me that they'd, they'd heard. And that really hurt me. And then maybe when you actually see it face up and then you realize the fact that this is just a 14-year-old kid and um, it's just a mum who works in a bank who's a, who'd been really nice all the time. And this is the pantomime that is football you kind of actually manage to distinguish what's important and what's not. And I, I suppose those little experiences, and it's not just me, I wanna, don't want to sound like I'm sort of crying here too much about it, because I think, as I say, not just football, in life, everyone has these little knocks that you must get over and they feel really painful to you at first. And you go through it again and then you realise, and then I started to play better. I got my foot in the first team, um, started to believe in myself a little bit more. And those little digs uh, became just, 
things that spurred me on. Um, I didn't really feel that until I left and went to Chelsea. Right. Because that's when I felt like, hang on, I'm on a different path here. I, I knew I needed to get away from West Ham because my time there was tainted. I don't have nice memories of it. And I'm not saying that as a, a tribal dig at a fellow London club because now I'm a Chelsea man. I just don't have nice memories of it. But I still, that's not to say I don't realise how much it shaped me and how much the opportunity that I got given at the club. Yeah, that is the, is an that is the key thing, I think, mm. is that even if something's painful, doesn't mean it isn't valuable. Yeah. You know, there's a phrase I often use, which is, it's never been harder to be ourselves these days because it's never been easier for other people to criticise right. us. In those days, it was a kid in the stands or an adult in the stands. Now it's all over social media. And I think that that is the key message for a lot of people listening to this is that at the time, things can feel really painful, but sometimes you've got to understand that to go through that painful stuff is almost, it's almost necessary Mm. You know, and that's exactly what your experience is, it feels like. Yeah, it's just how you, you react. And sometimes it's a long game. That, that's the tough thing sometimes, I think, because in those moments, you don't see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. All you see is that all I wanted to do was grow up and play for West Ham. I love mm. Tony Cotty, I love Frank McAvenny. And that was my dream. And then when you get the dream and you're on the touchline and you get some fella who's much older than you and quite dangerous looking and shouting at you and swearing at you, you go, what, what is this dream about? So at that point, I could not see the the light at the end of the tunnel but you know day by day bit of a better performance maybe not so good felt a bit stronger people around me helping me all these things they they absolutely came together and not, not to say it certainly would have gone that way I mean I was very fortunate in different parts of my career of timing of things that happened but I do I'm a big believer in making your own luck I'm a big believer if you train extra if you try and hold your dignity in moments where you could easily lose it and you know I've lost mine at different times in my career but if you try and do the right thing you may get your little uh things that go in your, in your favour and, and I probably had them you know coming back to get the Chelsea job my timing was impeccable <laughs> you know the transfer ban year at Derby and it all the stars almost aligned yeah. and people would like to tell me that but I don't believe in those things happening without reason or, or for what you put in to get there we talk often on this podcast about 100% responsibility and I think it can be a difficult mindset for some people but it basically is even things that are not your fault there's no point not taking responsibility for them because then you can't control them. What, what are your thoughts on that 100% responsibility? I'm, I'm absolutely a massive fan of it because one thing I think I've seen in football from being a young man trying to make it from playing through now managing is blame and any kind of blame culture or it's not me, it's them, it's that. Mm. I hear it a lot. As By a, the way, even if it is them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I'm, I'm lucky in a way, but I think part of the way I am is that I, 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 I never want to look at really, and maybe at times it's easy said, I blame the, the back four useless today, you know, for me, and I will blame, I blame the strikers because they didn't finish my, and really, uh, generally though, I always inside, always looking at myself, I was always my own biggest critic on the pitch and hopefully off the pitch, and of course made loads of mistakes. Um, but you have to take responsibility. If you, if you want to get better, you have to take responsibility, no matter mm. what, for good or for bad, I suppose. And how important is 100% responsibility in the culture you're now trying to create as a manager? Yeah, it's, it's of utmost importance and it's a message that you really have to drill home because I think it's very easy when you're a coach or a manager and you've been there and had your career and you know you made a million mistakes, but when you sit at the top of the tree or you know in my office at, at Chelsea, not to think like the 21-year-old who's making those mistakes you made and just think you're above it and I see it all and it's, you have to get on the, the level of these players and they all have 
different thoughts. They all have different reasons, something at home, on the training pitch, how they see things. And so I can't think that my morals and my values just transmit to everybody and then everyone will be a great trainer like I was and make the most of my talent because I didn't. I, I made mistakes. Sometimes I went out when I shouldn't have done. So I have to be very open to that. So to, for the players to try and take responsibility is a daily chip away at trying to create something that feels that way. And we're in that process at Chelsea. I'm not going to lie, we've not won that battle yet because it takes it definitely takes time, particularly with a, with a younger squad, which we have a lot of young players in there. One of the great stories that I like about your early career, Frank, was the fact that you speak about coming in and doing sprint sessions on days off or you'd often stay behind and do extra training. So when we had Rio Ferdinand on the podcast, he spoke about how he, he would see you doing it and he copied you because he wanted to get better. How do you cope with young players that are coming into your club, though, that don't have that desire, that do have a different view in the world in mm. terms of think that talent is going to be enough to, uh, to forge a successful career? Yeah, that, that's a good question. You can never assume, I, I've just spoken about my upbringing and I think I was drilled with it as a young man, um, but you can never assume that another player has that young player. So you, all you have to do is try and show them why it will benefit them, explain it to them. You can't just say you must go out and do 100 sprints and then expect them to get on with it and everything will be fine. You have to say, here's the reason why. You know, put the detail in it behind it to try and go individually through that group and explain to them what extras will do for them, what that will then do for the, the team, what that will do for their home life and where their career might go and all these things. And that's communication. You can't lay down laws of you must all do extras and then just stand back and watch it from the other side of the pitch. You have to speak to the players, change it, ask why, what do they think about it and get close to them. So I try and do that. And the reality is if you don't get any uplift after a while with that and you've tried and tried and tried, then there might be time where you have to say, well, you're not going to reach the level because if you don't have the attitude, no matter what the talent is, and it's a real age-old argument that I'm really interested in is, is sort of nature and nurture and how how much of this talent and can you just get by by just having pure talent? You know, I watched Neymar recently and I'm going, wow, this guy is an incredibly talented yep. player. But he will have his own version of the hard work and what it takes behind the scenes as well. Won't look like mine, won't look like everyone else's. Yep. He's an outrageously talented boy. But a lot of us don't have that outrageous talent and a lot of us have to put in lots of different types of work around it. And if you're talking, asking me, yeah, I will try and push it. But if players aren't going to do that, I think it has to be done at the top of the game. And then you would move on from that one. To go back to that nature-nurture argument then, if we relate it to you as a player and then talk, expand it out, what would you say the percentage was? Ooh, I, I, I could wake up one day and tell you percentage and think differently the next because I, I like to read about these sort of things and, and just to look at people and experiences you have with sports people, athletes, actually maybe in life. And... I can't give you that percentage. I know that I didn't have the, the talent of a Neymar. I also know that I did have talents in terms of I could finish. I think one of my biggest talents, which I touched on earlier, was being aware of the things I needed to do. You know, I was never the quickest, so I knew I had to get going earlier. I knew I had to read when I was on the blind side of a midfielder to make the run. And the more I did it, and the older I got, I got better at doing that. So I would probably say I'm quite heavy on the, the nurture but I don't know exactly what the percentage is. But haven't we just talked about 100% responsibility? Mm. So what's the point in your mind of thinking, well, it's all about nature? Because if you consider that all my success is down to nature, not nurture or not down to me, then you're kind of given up control. Mm. And it's a difficult one because even if your players have not had the upbringing that you've had um, and maybe they're not born with the same talents that, you've, that you were born with, you still have to find a way to get them to buy into this 
100% responsibility. Mm. You're not responsible for whether Mason Mount has a successful Chelsea career or not. Mason Mount yeah. is successful for that and every other young player then, huh? Yeah, but well, they are, of course, but then I, 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 so I disagree with you. My, my view on that now as a manager is that I am responsible and the only way I think you can create an environment which looks like you're asking for everyone to be 100% responsible is by them seeing that from yourself. So I, I don't think it's a problem to show weakness. I don't think it's a problem to, for me to try and prepare a team for a week and work on a shape and then you come up and it doesn't work at the weekend to almost be a bit open with the players and, and say maybe a few individual moments or that. I don't, I don't mind that. The, uh, and I, I did my pro licence last year and I like to read, I like to listen to coaches, even if, that, if it was a coach that had a completely different philosophy to mine, you know, long ball, bracket long, go on stats completely, or whatever, whatever way it yeah. might be. If I can gain one nugget from that argument or that idea, that means I'm developing, you know, and I, need, and I, need, I know I need to develop. For a young coach to come in and go, no, no, I know the game of football. I know what it is. Don't, don't worry, I don't need to listen to that view. And also, if my players don't produce, that's because they're not good enough. I'll need better players or something. That kind of lazy argument is never going to get you anywhere. It's one of my sort of things that I really try and, and do is to look at myself every day and go, what could I have done there? I can't blame the players for that performance. I can't. You know, and at moments you'll sit down with reflection and of course you look at how the squad looks, but I must make myself 100% culpable for, for Mason Mount as well. Yeah. And would you admit that to them after a game? Would you... Would I you suppose e I just have. They're obviously going to listen to <laughs> well, <laughs> this fantastic likely, yeah. podcast. But would you ever stand up in the dressing room and say, lads, I got, I got that wrong? Because I sometimes think that you're only in very early stages of your management career. Mm. If you're Arsene Wenger or Sir Alex Ferguson, you might be far more comfortable at going, do you know what? I've had 20 years of being a manager. Mm. I got that wrong today. Mm. It feels like um, a braver, maybe more dangerous thing for a really young manager to do because there is that constant battle early on to mm. convince certain people that you're okay to be yeah. a manager. I, I haven't done it in that way, but I, what I have done with individuals is... For instance, I know this year I've, I've not played players and I've sort of wrestled with a, the selection problem, decided not to play a player. We've not gone so well. And I've said to the player, that was a mistake. I, I made yeah. a mistake not playing you there. And, and little things like that. For I bet that's quite powerful, actually. I, I, well, I, I like to think so because I kind of think what would I want to hear as a, as a player? And I think that to have, and a, a good friend of mine recently told me, you know, we were talking about communication. And he was saying, if you don't communicate, the wrong understanding will just contaminate that space of not communicating. So if I drop that player, don't say a word, feel like it went wrong myself, don't mention that to him and pick him or don't pick him next week. I've got no idea of control about how we're going to take that. Where at least if I can go and say, okay, yeah, you know what? I made a mistake there. I feel that and I, I feel you'll get something back there. Whether you get a blank face, an angry face or whatever, those difficult conversations, fortunately, are part for the, for the calls for me in, in the job I do. I but if that. I don't and take the easy out, which I have taken at times. Mm. Last year at Derby, when I first got in, it was like, oh, these difficult conversations, I'm going to put that one off. Uh, and maybe sometimes you still do, but generally you've got to try and hit them as much as you can. So what would you say has been the single biggest thing that you've learned in the couple of years that you've been a head coach now then, Frank? There were, there were so many things tactically, so I won't kind of touch on that because I think there, there is a big part of that, but probably that one of personal relationships with the, the players and, and the group relationship that you had with them trying to strike that right balance because for me a high performing group or our team say it has to be a balance between being really positive but being slightly on edge 
so it's like how positive can I be that I don't want to sound like I'm you know just trying to be a cheerleader here and not not see that we've lost two games on the bounce or something you know I can't just keep being positive and when we're winning and it's great how can I keep them on edge to so they don't think yeah we're going to win every game because I've yeah. seen that one before many times and then you lose the next so I think I try to create that kind of balance and, and, I, and I'm still striving for that I still think a lot about that and go over it myself and go have, have I been positive have I spoken to that player enough did he get what I felt there you know and how can I help each individual and I, and I think you do have to keep analysing that one because it's always different but I think that's the thing I've learned that you can't neglect that side of it and think I'm just going to be the master coach because I'm not I'm not the master coach and I'm not the great psychologist but I'll do my best to do what I can see in front of me and yeah. hopefully we'll get success it sounds very much like we go back to that yin and yang of the way you were parented mm. the hard message as well as the nurturing support and encouragement mm. yeah which leads us to there's a really interesting area that I want to explore with you this idea of family and how important family bonds are to you so mm. when you speak about the West Ham experience, it sounds that a large part of your emotion came from the fact that you felt betrayed. Mm. You'd grown up in the in East End mm. family. You were seen as a family club and yet mm. they rejected you. Mm. How do you think it's possible to create a, a family atmosphere at a club where you have those bonds, where you can be hard at times, but you still have that relationship where people know that you've got their best interests at heart? Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm... Um striving for i mean i, I agree the fact you, you're right and the family thing with my, my nan lived around the corner from west ham and i felt like well i was a crazy young west ham fan and then when it went the other way on me i kind of questioned not the club i questioned people but then as you get older you realize that you'll end up questioning people all your life no matter what you do because you know everyone's different and different circumstances so i think probably to to answer the question about now is that just tackle what you've got in front of you and you try and be there for your players. You try and be open with the players. You try and create a togetherness between them as a group. That's hard because we play at the top of elite sport. I've got 25 players, say, whatever our squad is at any time, and I can pick 11. And the other ones generally probably don't like you on a Saturday afternoon or whenever it is. It's the easy one after a, a win and I'll come out and speak afterwards or, or the players and go, yeah, you've got great team spirit here. And then when you lose, you kind of go, well, you know, you, all of a sudden you have to go, well, there's a team spirit not so good this week because you lost. Yeah. So it's not like a simple one to say we've, got a, we've created a great family atmosphere. That can only come at the right end when you probably won it or, or feel like you've achieved such great success and then people put that together. The building blocks for that are huge because it's a really easy thing to say. But to have the family feel in a really competitive, high-performance sport is tough and takes a lot of work. And it doesn't look like... The, the the ideal family it doesn't look like sure. that you know but what would you say are the building blocks of doing that then well communication for sure making the message clear to the players of what you want from them on the training pitch having an idea with the players that i want you to i want us to be a group of good people as well as good players and a good team i think you have to have respect amongst each other and and you definitely at the top of the club set that tone like that is definitely on me i'm 100 responsible for that one and you try and promote that regularly in how you train, how you act. And if you see things that you don't like within the group, you have to act upon them. I, I don't want a beautiful family. I want players that can rely on each other when they go out on the pitch that are going to be tough and back each other up at the right moments. And that, as I say, that doesn't look like the beautiful family. And that's life. You know, lots of things in my family, without going into detail, that are not perfection. That's life. But you just try and do your best. 
And how do you get the balance between having a close relationship with a player so that when the time is right, you can put your arm around them and tell them that you're there for them? Mm-hmm. And at other times, making it clear that they are the players, you are the manager, and there is a big distinction there. I wonder whether that's something that, that you've wrestled with in your, particularly in your first year at Chelsea and probably at Derby as well. Yeah, no, I, I do wrestle with it a lot. I think you can do it. I, I think when, when uh, the, the idea of being straight with a player always helps. And mm. um, honestly, it's a difficult one because sometimes it's really hard to be honest because you can say things that could really that hurt the player if you wanted to be you know, absolutely honest. But I think you can be straight and be very caring in how you speak to the players. I think they'll accept the good and the bad. They might walk off not liking you. Um, they might go and tell someone else, I don't really like him so much or whatever. But I do think... Because I had managers that I worked for that at the time I probably didn't have the best relationships with. In my reactive way, back in the day, I would have gone, don't like him because he didn't pick me so much. Now I'm older, I get it. I Mm. get the problems that they had trying to deal with me. So I I try and sometimes, when you speak to the players, don't just try and be the cutting manager that's making the decision. Give them maybe something, not a story, because they definitely don't want to hear my stories all day, but give them an experience maybe or talk about a bigger picture, maybe try and come from it from a different angle. Because I do think players sometimes respond when you actually, you know, I spoke to a player recently who was having a tough time playing. And I referred to tough times I had planned and I was understanding of the fact, because I had many a tough time. I took my foot off the pedal sometimes, just played bad in certain games, took criticism at times. And as I say, it always comes. So I think to try and speak to the players in a, in a pretty grown up way and, and explain that this is it, means that you can sell both sides, the good and the bad moments too. Mm. And you spoke earlier about the way to communicate with people. Mm. And, and I, I'm, a, I'm in complete agreement with that because I think if you are doing your best and it comes from the heart and you're doing it for the right reasons, you can never cause an issue by communicating. And it's one of my frustrations, you know, my, my other job as a football presenter, you know, I always want to speak to managers and particularly directors of football, people who set the agenda at a club, people who decide on the culture of a football club because when things go wrong, they don't talk. So people just jump to conclusions and assume that they either don't care or they don't know what they're doing. And if they were able to come out and talk more openly and explain why a certain move or a certain player or a certain situation hasn't worked out positively, I think it would help them because people would realise, oh, they do care. They Like everyone, things just go wrong sometimes in life. And I think as long as as a manager, you've got the best intentions. Mm. It's never the wrong thing to share how you truly feel with your players and I wonder if that's something that's changed. You know, when you were growing up, managers were quite autonomous a lot of the time, weren't they, mm. in those days? And they'd, yeah. this is my way or the highway. And I think now managers like you and Jurgen Klopp and Maurizio Pochettino, it's about taking those players with you on the journey, mm. isn't it? Yeah, I, I was interested when I listened to you speak with Pochettino, actually, because I think you mentioned, I'm pretty sure it was on your podcast, but you mentioned about um, coming in with non-negotiables as a manager. Right, and then yeah. realising that he couldn't quite stick to those non-negotiables. And I absolutely got that because when you come into management and you can have a really firm idea, I will not accept somebody being late. I will not accept it if they don't. I will not accept that kind of performance. And then when you come and you go, oh, he's been late, but you need him at the weekend, <laughs> do you have to say it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, there were, and there's a manager you get probably about, I don't know how many, but loads of them every day. And if you come in with an iron fist and you want to say, this is how I am, almost to promote myself, I'm a young manager, but don't worry, I'm really tough. I think you're going to get players that go to, come on. Like, so, and that's not to say I don't have... Don't you still need non-negotiables though? There yes, you do. Certain, what what yeah. are your certain things that simply are not 
acceptable. Work ethic on the training pitch is absolutely to to have work ethic. To not respect your teammate, I suppose, if you're out of the team and you don't support the group, that's absolutely like to. I understand a sad face on the bench in terms of an angry face that want to play, but to not be part of the group, then that's almost uh, the start of the end if that develops. So you can't accept that. We have like a lot of rules. There's a big thing made when we did our fine system at Chelsea because it was quite chunky. The, the numbers were big, you know, and, and I kind of wanted to because I felt I'd been told about how things had been the year before and I don't like people being late and all those things, but I'm also human and I get it. And there are loads of things around that that have to, you have to move on slightly because this is life. We can't have, it can't be one certain way. We all see things differently as we go through it. I think what you try to do is lay down those rules because you want to give the players a guideline of where you want to go to. And I think once they start to respect that and you feel that, I think you can then move on to the next stage where you kind of go, okay, don't forget them lads, but they're there. But what's the next thing? How can we get better on the pitch? Which is obviously clearly the most important thing. And finding people for being one minute late is not necessarily going to make you better on the pitch. So it's, it's, that's kind of, I think those pieces are pretty movable at times. There's the story that I'd read about um, Mourinho following you into the showers yeah. to tell you that you could be the best player in the world. Yeah. Would you do that? to a player. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would because it was, it was exactly what I needed. It might look slightly different to how Jose did it. I get asked about that moment a lot, and what's really clear to me as I've got older is that he knew I wasn't the best player in the world. Probably didn't think I was going to be the best player in the world, but that doesn't mean that he was faking it or actually lying to me. I think it was great man management. It definitely gave me the lift I needed at the time. And, and another manager later on in, in my career did an absolute reverse of that conversation and it hit me really hard as well. So I would certainly have uh, a positive um, conversation like that. I think the absolute beauty, and it obviously makes it better when you're storytelling, because I keep getting asked about it, is the fact that the, the image of him naked and me naked like 
showering ourselves whilst having a quite an important conversation but that was a beautiful thing as well that's what kind of let, let, made me learn or think about in management is that not every conversation has to be come into my office son and sit down I'm going to the symbolism it. isn't it yeah it was the way that it was so those conversations can be on the road on the side of the training pitch over a lunch and those sort of things so I, I certainly would do I'm, the benefit of being absolutely positive and telling a player how good they can be sounds so simple but why wouldn't you do that you played for a lot of different coaches over your career and you know that phrase that for people outside of football mm. is often used of when a coach loses a dressing room mm. what do you understand by that then i've seen it many a time and i think the communication one is a big deal like we keep coming back to it and it's interesting the more you talk about it because if a player or a group of players don't feel like they have something back from you. For good or for bad, I think you start to lose. That, that space gets filled with the negativity that we talk about. I think sometimes there's a blame thing in football where maybe it's at times, and I've been involved in this again, where the group of players, for some reason, feel like the manager is the one that's letting them down, and then you start to feel that relationship break down that way. And some of it, I think, is an unfortunate, and it's, it's quite a cutting phrase, isn't it? It sounds terrible. Yeah. If I was a manager that you have that, you read that, you'd be like, oh my God, that's really what I don't want. That's horrible. But I don't think it's as simple as that always. I just think sometimes the, uh, the balance between players and management or whatever can, can break down somewhere along the line. So I think you, don't, you can't walk in fear of that. I think you have to work as well as you can try and communicate, try and make the message clear. Because I think if you don't have a clear message on and off the pitch, it's an easy excuse for players to go, well, I didn't quite understand that. So you can never assume that players expect that I come in, that I want to play a different way, and it means switching the ball from one side of the pitch to the other rather than short passes. I have to hammer that daily and train that way daily. And then at the end, you know what? If I lose a dressing room when I've tried to do everything I can, or lose a dressing room as that headline might say, I think you can probably walk away pretty comfortable with it. But I think if you lose a dressing room where you haven't addressed loads of issues with players, you've made it a bit negative, you're not the positive face every morning and you come in and you're upset because they're not doing what you think that they should do, I think then as a manager, you'd have to take that as, as a slant on yourself and maybe accept you're going to lose people if you're not going to work in that way. And have you become comfortable with the fact that Football's a bit of a crazy world, and we've already touched on 100% responsibility in this podcast, but you can take 100% responsibility, you can do your very best job, but your success or your failure is still dependent upon the performances yeah. of other people. Have you become comfortable with, with that fact, or is it still one that you yes wrestle no. with a little bit? <laughs> it's, it's one of the reasons I think management, there's a lot of reasons, is much more stressful than playing. One of them is because as a player, you, sit, you have much more responsibility yourself and that's it kind of thing. As long as you prepare right and play as well as you can, of course, you want to be a team player. As a manager, your responsibility starts on Monday, finishes at the end of the game on Saturday, and then it just restarts for the next game all the time, consistently. And you know that whatever you're doing, I've had games this year where I feel like I prepared as well as I possibly could. That's great. I, mean, I know what we're playing against. The patterns went right. The shape of the team's good. My selection feels right. And you lose. And ones where it didn't feel good in the week, then you win. And I know that's life generally a little bit, but there is a lot of businesses out there that you can actually kind of, you know, have markers towards getting to where you want to get to if you feel like you do the right things. And then probably at the end of the year, you can kind of go, yeah, we, we succeeded because look, look where our stock's gone up or look where that's ended up. Football doesn't work that way. So it's, it's very important you reflect at the end of a season saying, look about how well you thought you did. But you have to understand that there's that crazy element that you talk about. You can't rely on it. It can't be an excuse because if I keep saying, like I mentioned earlier, if I want to blame the players, then I might as well forget about it because I have to take the, the responsibility completely. But it's why football is stressful on the line because some days you feel like you've done everything right and 
it's not happening on match day. And that's one of the unfortunate parts of the job, I suppose. It's also a recruitment business because every business in the world is a recruitment business, whether mm. you're running a shop, running a factory mm. or running a football club. So yeah. as long as you get recruitment right, you should be okay. I'm not talking about getting the best players. I'm talking about getting the right players. Yeah. How do you judge what is a right player for you at Chelsea? What are the things that you look for before you decide, yep, he's the man for me? Well, yeah, you have to look at it in the context of the squad that you have. And I had a, a long year to look at it as I got to Chelsea because we, we couldn't bring anyone in. So, the, you know, we had some loans that come back, but they'd been, they were normally pretty young and they'd come from the championship. So I've had a long look at it this year. In football terms, it has to be joined up. You need to have the club and yourself and the scouts and people around you, hopefully, pointing in the same direction. We haven't even touched on the challenge of managing up yeah. to a board or a chief exec or anything. Yeah, so, and, you, and you have to do it. You know, it's one of the almost step one on the coaching badges. Managing up is a huge thing that they talk about. I think every manager in the Premier League or in football will have different experiences of that managing up. And so they, they all look different. You have to look at the balance of the squad and think, well, where do we need to improve? That, that's, that's clearly a, a huge thing. And then um, you go through the process of, of looking around and what kind of profile you're looking at, depending on what position it may be. What do I want my team to be? Do I want them to be physically great? Do I want them to be really technically great somewhere in the middle? And you're obviously going to then recruit players along the basis of those lines. That's what your job is as a manager. That's why most managers will come in and go, can I make two or three signings along my with my vision because it will help affect this team you know because they're the type of players I want to bring in and I didn't have that in year one at Chelsea now hopefully we'll see in year two that I can bring that to the team to help it so when I can stand up and talk about my team I can say yeah it is quick and pacey and lots of energy because look we work hard on the training pitch is always rule number one but the players we're bringing in are taking us in that direction and they're improving us so I think that process of recruitment is really really tough but I think it's pretty simple when you want to break it down like that they have to improve you they have to go along with the idea of where you want to go with the team Mm. and then they have to be good people and good influences. How do you judge that though? You do as much as you can in terms of um, looking at the, 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 the you know, it's, this is not brand new from me today but the scouting systems are not just looking at players now, they're actually looking at their life, their social media. And when you say everything. a good person, what? how would you define that? I want, I want them to be players that want to come and improve and feel like they play for Chelsea, feel like they want to help us and be successful and be part of a team They'll obviously come with a selfish demeanour. I don't want the perfect teammate. That sounds too corny. They have to be a good teammate, of course. But they, they want to come and actually be, be good for themselves, whatever their motive might be. They might want to play for, for Real Madrid in four years' time. That's just life. But when they come to Chelsea, I want them to come and be straight into the team and want to work and be hungry and come in and I want to win and not cause problems and not be badly selfish. Like, it's all about me. I want someone who wants to do well because they want to be part of a winning team. It sounds easy. It's really easy to say because you never know until you actually get them through the door. But you can learn quite a lot by a phone call a face-to-face -face meeting a talk with someone that's worked with them before you can do as you have to do as much as you can I think you're in a really interesting stage of your career uh, coming into Chelsea Frank because you, you see a pattern emerging through a lot of sort of coaching careers that you get to the like the initial excitement stage where you, you know where you come in and then people start doing something differently mm. and then you hit that messy middle stage which mm. is where in football coaching, that's when most coaches get the sack and they bring somebody <laughs> in to go back to the start. And yet, sustained success requires you to get through that messy middle to mm. then start to make to make progress to where, to where you are. Mm. So, looking at your career now, you, you're about to enter the messy middle stage mm. of that of that second season. Yeah. So, what problems do you anticipate are likely to come your way? I agree with you, and I think you have to be understanding that you're coming to the messy patch. 
because you have to accept that. And I think our messy patch probably happened actually back end of the season. I think we achieved a lot this season because nobody expects us to come in the top four. But we lost a cup final and then we lost to Bayern Munich and it's a bit of taste for, for me. I go away and I have a bad feeling about those games. So I understand that those issues and problems will come again next year. I just... I and, and we as staff have to double down. We have to work harder. We have to analyse why we conceded 50 goals this year and not just me say, yeah, it's because of him and he could have done better and he could have done better. What could I have done to do better? So the messy patch is always going to come. And yep. even if you're Liverpool now, who this year were absolutely incredible, I'm sure Jurgen Klopp's not had his feet up for the last three weeks going, okay, oh, great players we've got, we're just going to kill it again next year. It will be where's next. So my version of that has to be, how can I keep going and improving and be ready for the messy patch. But at a club like Chelsea, where there is a big turnover of coaches that you've experienced through your time, how do you manage upwards to make sure that you get that patience to know that the pattern is going to be turbulent at some stage? How do you ensure that you get the patience to keep faith with you to get through that's it? Not easy. That's, not, that's not an easy answer. Now, I think you can just do your job as well as you can. We come back to communicating again. I certainly think communicating upwards is a good thing because... When your tough times come, and it's easy to obviously send an email or make a phone call after a great win because it's the easiest call ever. But after a loss, if you then go quiet and you're not really explaining, and I, I understand that. If I was an owner of a club and I'm watching and go, well, okay, so let's, let's, feel, let's see what his reaction is going to be. What's the team next week and all these things. I think if you can communicate, I think it certainly helps our relationship. Whether it buys you time or not, I don't know. But I, I can't get too far ahead of myself. I can't talk about two or three year plans too much. I may say it to the media sometimes because I think it's a good thing to kind of lay, lay out there. But at the same time, I'm very aware of a club like Chelsea that even though we had a transfer ban, even though the, the year was difficult, expectations are going to go up hugely next year. And I just have to accept that as part of the job and try and go about my job as well as I can. And, and if I am having relationships which mean managing up or managing around me, I have to be as good as I can with those because they're all important because the tough time will come and I'll rely on those all those little ones. And that might not just be managing up, that might be managing the kit man or you know a member of staff around you because i've seen how the the dominoes can fall very quickly and, and i think if you isolate yourself as a manager or you don't want to open yourself up to to all those relationships along the way i think they, they, they fall much quicker yeah it comes back to understanding doesn't it and it's a hard one because as the manager you're kind of the scratching post at that football club for everyone with an issue from mm. you know someone like the kit man right up to Roman Abramovich at the mm. top but you know particularly when it comes to managing up and lots of business people listen to this podcast to, mm. s to get decent takeaways for their own business life and a lot of them will manage up as well mm. you need to understand don't you what Marina is going through what Roman is going through not just from a Chelsea perspective mm. but from their personal lives and their, their own challenges that they have on a daily basis as well and that what Frank Lampard wants is not the be-all and end-all of, of Chelsea Football Club always. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the biggest things I, I, I noticed about going from Derby, which is a big club, a championship club, and going to Chelsea, which is a Champions League club. It's bigger. The network is huge. You know, where the, the training ground is huge. I walk from my office down to the canteen. There's four or five, six offices with people doing different work, more numbers, more people. And when I realised that Derby actually was pretty easy for relationships because there weren't so many people. And now when you walk into Chelsea, I think I can walk in with an idea. Okay, I think this is how, in my opinion, how medical should work, how the loan department should work, how recruitment should work and all these things. And if I walk in and think I can actually make everyone think the same as I think, 
I don't think I'm going to do that in two seconds. And I think that's coming back to that sort of non-negotiable thing. I have to go in. And even if I don't quite agree or don't quite like it, I have to work with people. I don't have to like them. They don't have to like me that much, but they have to respect me in the workplace. So I noticed that Chelsea was, was huge. And on a bad day, it's easy to go in and kind of ignore some of those offices because we've lost. And kind of, you know, you, you have to open up all those conversations. So it's not just managing up. It's understanding how the analyst feels, maybe. We've got a great analysis team and that. How they feel if we have a loss and they might feel a little bit of responsibility. Unless you go and speak to them about that and take on responsibility yourself, then you, you have a little bridge burnt there. I'm guessing in lots of industries that will be a similar thing. You cannot go in and think, I know everything. And because I'm, I'm the manager, you will all play to my tune. No, no, I'm very open to, to understanding, trying to understand whatever. It doesn't mean I have to agree, but I'll try and understand. I, I've learned that a lot this year, yeah. to be honest, Jake, from the difference of being at Derby. Who coaches you, Frank? Um, my staff, definitely, in terms of... I'm very open with, with the staff that I have and I like to throw things out there. I don't like to come in. Some days I'll come in and say, oh, I thought about it last night, this is how I want us to train today, but blast for their ideas and their opinions. And so sometimes you get things back that help you become a better coach, you could, clearly because you trust in them. I don't go searching for conversations. Like, you know, it's one, I always get asked this, do you speak to Jose Mourinho? Do you speak to Harry Redknapp? Do you speak to... Like, I had those conversations, if I have respectfully, but I don't go searching for that. I feel like I, I'm taking responsibility by just trying to learn day by day. So if I can become a better coach, I think it's up, it's up to me. It's up to me to be open and take in things. What about at home with, with your wife, Christine? Because she's not worked in football. Oh, she definitely coaches she's not, Well, there you go. <laughs> because I don't think you have to just come from a football background yeah. to be able to give advice because... Your entire life, as soon as you arrive at Cobblemore at Stamford Bridge, is only about personal relationships. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what walk of life you're from, if you know how to deal with those, and I'm sure she does. Yeah, I'm very fortunate on that one, Jake. And, you know, I, I might give you a great headline out of this podcast if one of the papers nick this, but because I do throw a lot of things off Christine. And it's like, she's not like picking what fullback we're going to play the weekend. But at the same time, if I have certain issues, which are lifey issues or, and actually football issues sometimes, I can, I can definitely go home. I'm fortunate to have that because I think she's very work-orientated. She's had you know, a really good career in what she does. And I really sort of, I obviously love her very much, but I really respect her for how she, she's got on in her career and works and, and how diligent she is. Like when we're at home and she's been working recently doing a TV program early morning one and we're sitting and I'm doing my patterns at night we've got a young baby there and she's doing her notes at night I think I've said this to you recently but sitting there for two hours yeah. and we kind of look at each other and go did we really expect to be in this position <laughs> like, is this really we haven't spoken for a while because we're working away yeah. but don't get me wrong we have lots of downtime but I, I love the fact that I have somebody there that gets working environments and, and I, I love to bounce because it's a different view yeah. it's a different opinion I can get bogged down I spend so much time in Cobham I almost live in my Chelsea tracksuit sometimes. I have to take it off when I get home because it's like I'm looking at the Chelsea badge. I've been at Cobham all day. I'm in an environment and my staff all the time. It's, it's great sometimes. I go, Christian, what do you think about this problem? Yeah. I've got a player here and you know, he didn't turn up for training yesterday, but you still probably need him at the week. What do you think? And she might go, yeah, but has he got a girlfriend, wife, a problem? Have you spoken to them? Maybe you should speak to them. And I'm like, yeah. You know, like, so mm. she's not my like, life coach as such, but I'm very fortunate to have someone to, to bounce things off at home. And please don't take this the wrong way. Take it in the spirit in which it's intended, right? Okay. You're only a, a football manager, right? Yeah. Whereas she looks at this without all the baggage you carry of football being this huge business in this great world and the happiness of thousands of people is reliant upon you doing a good job, right? Mm. The fact that she isn't in that yeah. probably makes her a better person to give you advice than going to Jody Morris, who I know is a brilliant assistant for you. It's 
sometimes it's better maybe for Christine, who's not in that world, to give you the advice. De- definitely, Jay. You're right. I've got great staff. Jody Morris, Joe Edwards, Chris Jones, who are my, my yeah. close staff. But it's more rounded from her. And yeah, it's more rounded. And, I, and I, again, I appreciate you can become not bogged down but it's the same message and we sit for hours at work talking obviously planning and discussing things but to come on that round like Christian has a bit of a joke you know with me at home when we're watching football constantly all the time and she's like she's almost fed up and you know I'm talking football and the conversation probably comes a bit boring and she she does reflect on the fact that it's only kicking a ball and it's only like a game and she's not criticising on that point she's almost like you're becoming really really intense about this and maybe not seeing a bit of clarity in this instance when you really you've got to look at it and it's a game and you're dealing with people. Yeah. And that's kind of the most important thing, really. It's very simple. There's a lot more to it, of course. But if you come back to that Maybe sometimes, it, it makes you yeah, realise yeah. what it is. See, but that surprises me that you described that you can be quite myopic because, again, like if you go back to your early childhood, you went to a school that was preaching more about being a rounded individual. Mm. You know, again, reading in your books, you say that you take a real interest in politics and, and life outside of football. Mm. Do you feel that football management is sort of making you that way more myopic? Or, yeah. or like it, it's the nature of the job or, or it's yeah. you that's the... No, I think, I think, well, I think I'm changing anyway, but it's definitely changed me. I mean, simple things like uh, my interest in politics. I, the year I worked in the media, spent a lot of time with Jake. And I used to like read certain newspapers, read articles, read different kind of books. I, I don't, I don't, I've just started watching a couple of Netflix recently, but I haven't watched Netflix and I, I like interesting things like that. I can watch you give me, yep. and, I, and I came away from that a lot. And I, and I just watch football and I sit and do patterns and plan training and talk football. And I think for your own health, actually, and for uh, sometimes a bit of um, balance, certainly in your life, lockdown actually brought that back to me a little bit. It was really nice to not go game, 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 game for a period and reflect and think and talk about different things. You do have to be obsessive. You do have to work pretty much every bloody hour you can to do try. Do Yeah, you do. You do because I think otherwise everybody would be like Pep Guardiola. It's not like that. He's the best and Jurgen Klopp are the best. Pochettino have great success because of the input from them, them themselves. I can't sit here and say what is high performance and say, well, hard work and then come away from that. It has to be there in a huge sense. But I'm just talking about more balance there. But I'd say like when you read about someone like Guardiola, that one of his best friends is a, is a poet and a mm. playwright, you know, mm. like he's got, he does seem to have a rounded friendship group that it isn't just all about football with him and I'm, I'm just interested that yeah you know like again reading that you say you've got friends that work in the city friends that, have, yeah. that do a variety of jobs yeah, they're not poets <laughs> no, <laughs> they, can, no. they can drink about 10 pints in an evening <laughs> yeah, easily but, yeah. they're not, they're not. but i'm surprised yeah. that I'm, I'm surprised that you think you have to be an obsessive about it I think, you can, to be I, think successful. You can, I think you can be both. I think you can be both. I've read a few books on Pep Guardiola and his time in uh, Bayern Munich and he became obsessive about the system. He was struggling in the beginning to get it and there was you know, stories of him sitting up through the night through the night, and all these things. And I, this was pre-management for me when I read this. And I was like, wow, that's, like, that's intense. And I understand why this fella is as good as he is. Because without that detail, you can't get to where you want to be. Not in the modern day. I mean, the, 
the old days of um, the great Liverpool team of the 80s, and I hear pundits say this sometimes, oh, it's great, we used to have five sides every day, we used to move the ball so quick, we were a great team. That cannot be done anymore. It cannot be done on that level. You need to be absolutely on point in terms of detail because otherwise someone else will be. And the adage of you can't blame your players will be a very true one. Yes, of course you need good players. Absolutely you need good players. But if you don't have that detail, and everyone will have their, probably their ways of, you know, my friend's a poet, you know, he, I read about uh, Pep Guardiola um, speaking with people who play chess and loving people yeah, to play for that Kasparov, kind of different yeah. angle. And those sort of things I really respect. So I do search for those kind of things. But when it comes back down to it, I do feel it's the input of how much you want to work around your team to be better that is going to define you in management. Does burnout concern you then? Yes, I think I can, I can see it. I can see it. I, I read Jürgen Klopp the other day talking about he may take time off and, he, he, and luckily enough he can probably absolutely choose when that is, rightly so. And he may enjoy that and may not come back and I get that thought process. So I get burnout from the, the idea of the manager. I get it maybe from the idea of the message from the players up to the manager. You hear about great ma managers in teams that have like a three or four year cycle. I understand that from both sides and I think this job we're in is so intense and there's so much expectation and pressure that I think you burn out can be and I think you need to take every moment you can to recharge within the year and I understand managers that want to take time away from it. Why do it then? I, lo I do love it um, and when I had my year off it was the most beautiful thing to do because I was, it was very intense as a player on myself for a long time and I needed to break away from that but then I had a burning desire to get back in. Mm. I have a burning desire to try and be the best I can be at what I do. And I'm lucky I do love football and I want to be the best I can be in it. So if you took it away from me tomorrow, and that's always possible in this game, I'd miss it. I know that for sure. I love doing it. And I just want to finish by taking it back to your mum and the quote that we, we both read in the book where you said a great bit of advice from her was just be kinder to yourself. Mm. How are you getting on with that? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it because... You mentioned Christine. I've got a fantastic supportive wife. I've got three daughters, you know, um, one relatively young and my elder two. We've all just been away for a few days in, in the break that we've had. And those are moments that are just brilliant for me and actually come away from. So I try and be, you know, I like, be, be kind to yourself. Maybe it sounds a bit like a false kind of motto now, but I do have to have time. But when you've got good people around you and you look at your daughters and, and my wife, and then those are the moments that I can be. And I'm in work mode a lot. I'm in work mode a lot. I can't change that. Christine snaps me out of it sometimes with our own personal moments. I try and enjoy them. And, uh, and I do enjoy them. So I try, I do enjoy them. That's uh, why it's important, I think, to have people around you that nourish you away from the world that you're in. And you have to be quite ruthless, I think, sometimes. Rhea Ferdinand yeah. spoke about this and Robin Van Persie about mm. cutting away the drains and only leaving the fountains. It's, yeah, it's a I hard mean, lesson. I have a lot with that, Jake. I mean, I... You know, my, my phone and my messages, and sometimes you get a lot of people messaging and different things, and it's not all negative. It's not, of course, it's not. Like, I've got friends that I don't see as much as I used to, and all that thing. And that's not like the cut loose. I heard Robin Van Persie and was talking, and there were specific reasons I think he moved away, which helped his career. I, I generally don't have the time uh, the way I work at the moment now, and I feel bad sometimes. And I'll try and find a time where you have to put things on hold. But the inner circle and the tight people around you. Yeah, you have to rely on really good people because this job is extreme in terms of football and it takes a lot out of you. And I'm very lucky that I can have the wife that tells me to snap out of it in a good way and we go on and have a date night and a dinner or we do something different. Those, those things are great. And then I have to not talk about football for two or three hours. And um, that's it. That's the balance you try and strike. We're going to move on to our quickfire questions in just a second. But before we get to those, just a final one about your, your daughter, Patricia, who's how old? Two years old? Two, nearly two. 
nearly two. Mm. Of all the things you've learned and all the journey you've been on, how do you employ that now, having this beautiful little almost two-year-old and mm. you're such an important part of her life? How do you take those lessons you've learned to give her as much as you can? I try and be the, the, the dad, and as I did with my two elder daughters as well, and obviously still try to do as they get older, obviously the relationship changes. But with Patricia, lockdown came, uh, obviously a difficult time for everybody in the world. But for me, in terms of home life and being able to devote more time to her, it was the big plus of a tough time for everybody, for me at home, because I could give her more time. And I do we talk about the relationship with my mum and dad. I want to be a parent more like my mum. I am more aligned to that, to have calm words, be a smiley, positive face and all those things as she grows up. And I, and I try and do that. You know, I'm always dad that seems to go away to work quite a lot and probably come back in her very young years. But that, sometimes you get that big bubbly smile and excitement because you are the one that doesn't do all the, the nitty gritty jobs that Christine has to do. And I just come back and make her laugh and be funny. It's just a, a, a great position sometimes. But that's all I want to do. And, and bring her up with good manners. You know, I want her to be a, a polite young girl as I try to do with my older daughters because that's what would make me proud I don't care but I do care that they get their great grades when they get to the GCSEs and A-level time but if they're good people then that's that's all I really want from them I thought there was a really nice comment you made um, in that game at Anfield earlier this year where you you were caught making some comments to, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. to yeah. Klopp yeah. and I really liked the fact that when you were interviewed you said your main concern was that your elder daughters would see mm. you using bad language and that was the bit that you regretted, not mm. necessarily. Yeah, what, no, I, I did regret that. And when that broke the next day, I, I clearly felt it as I was doing it, but when it broke the next day and a friend of mine sent it to me in the morning, I was a bit embarrassed by it because I was in the moment. But in the moment, I felt we turned up and it was the easiest day for Liverpool ever. They won the league, they went goals up early in the game. And few things happen with the bench. I'm not going to go into the detail, but my feeling was I want to protect my club. And I, I didn't have the problem with Liverpool celebrating at all. I, luckily enough, I've been there. I've been with Chelsea, won, won the league quite early one year, and you can sit there and everything feels great. My feeling was I want to be there where they are. I definitely didn't mean any disrespect to Jurgen Klopp because I've got huge admiration for him, but what I felt had gone on, it was an impulse reaction, which I would happily, uh, when I do see him, I'll, I'll put that one right. But also I care about my job and it came out in the wrong way. And even I explained that to my daughters when I, when I got home. And I'll be brutally honest, it's not the first time they've heard it from me <laughs> in the wrong moment. So, you know, I do try and um, practice what I preach, but I suppose in adult life it doesn't always work that way. But yeah, I, I was this way. And not just my own daughters, because you've got, you know, millions of Chelsea fans around the world, whether you're young or old. It's not the way I like to carry myself. But in talking about high-level sport, you can't take passion out of the game. And um, it just came out of me in one little swoop there. Right, here we go then. Quick fire questions. The three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into. Um, I feel like I'm going over myself again here, but hard work. Yeah. To take responsibility for yourself. Be a nice person, I suppose. That is almost every time the third one, isn't it? The people go with the hard work and the relentlessness and then they're like, actually, you also, you've got to I do it. I think you can right. do both. You can do both. You can do yeah. both. What advice would you give a teenage Frank just starting out? I think to be, um, to, to stay calm through, through tough times and, and, be, and see the big, big picture because it's very easy to, to react to in, in, in good and bad in different ways. I feel very fortunate to have the career I had and now be manager of Chelsea Football Club. But within that, there's loads of things that go on. So I would sort of almost say to him, be, be prepared, young man. Do you know what I mean? Be prepared for good and for bad and just be a good person. And then when you work, work as hard as you can. 
dealing with the good and the bad leads us on to this one. How did you react to your greatest failure? Well, which one of my failures do you want to choose? <laughs> Whichever one you think is the greatest, I <laughs> yeah. guess. Yeah, I mean, we, we got knocked out of World Cups 2006. I had something like 30 shots and didn't score and got absolutely crucified for it. Um, how did I react to that? I probably consumed a fair, fair bit of alcohol on the evening of the game that we got knocked out in, uh, as you tend to do. And probably I'll make myself sound like the best sportsman ever if I went, I went away and worked hard and got better again because it's never that simple. Of course, sometimes you take it on the chin for a while. But I think it probably, hopefully, you learn as you get older with the failures. Because I had a, had a lot of failures. Is that the older you get, you kind of understand what they are. Keep your head down. The, the, when you haven't, when you failed, the last thing you should do is open your mouth and start shouting about what went wrong and what might have, and who else maybe was involved in that. It's to stay quiet and then just perform. Just come back and perform at a later date. And I think I, I hopefully did that most times. That I've failed. Are you happy? Yes, yes. I'm very happy in my home life, which is the most important thing, of course. Uh, and I'm happy in the job that I'm in, and and I love doing it. How important is legacy to you? Not that important. And I'll, I'll give an example of that quickly is that if I was worried about my legacy at Chelsea, I wouldn't have taken a manager's job. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that it's there. That can't be your goal. Maybe when I'm a really, really old man, hopefully, if I live long enough and you sit back at the end of it, you can go, yeah, legacy of that period or that period or that period. At the minute, I don't think about it. I think legacy is something to think about or to, for other people to talk about with you. So I'm not that concerned about it. And if you could give one golden rule for a high-performance life, Frank, what would that be? Um, I think you probably know. <laughs> <laughs> Not hard work again, no. surely. Um, no, but I mean, listen, a high-performance life, career, team, whatever, it looks different for everybody. So it's really hard to give advice. You know, Sir Alex Ferguson had an incredibly high-performing team and career for a long, long time. So do other managers now. They all, they all look different, and, and I appreciate that. So I wouldn't try and give that. I've, I spoke a lot there about working hard and having the right ethics, but it looks different for everybody. So I suppose do it, do it as you feel it, as, you, as what you see in front of you, with, with absolute demands on yourself to try and be as good as you can be, because de desire to improve daily is a huge thing that maybe I haven't quite picked up on enough there, but you, every day you wake up, it's what can I do better and, and never settle? Well, that's probably the, one of the, the main things. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Agreeing to be part of the no, High Performance Podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thanks. Damien. Jake. It's always a pleasure, isn't it, to hear from someone like Frank or Ollie or Sean Dyche because it gives such an interesting window into the world of a professional football club and how it's being operated at the moment. Yeah, definitely. And I think what I found really fascinating with all three of those guys and Frank that we've just listened to there is the fluidity of it that they're learning in the moment. So there's, there's very few things that they're rigid or fixed on. They're always learning new ways of doing it, like Frank speaking about his coaching group, how he got them together. It's a real window into how fast-moving and dynamic their world is. And I love how he talks about his new understanding of communication, taking people on the journey with him. And we're not just talking about taking his players on the journey, we're talking about everyone. And I think that's a great lesson for anyone listening to this podcast, is that whether things go well or go badly, if you tell everyone what you're intending and why you're intending it and how you're going to try and go about getting there, well, even if you don't complete the journey, they'll still come with you. Yeah, very much. I think that phrase that he used around nature abhors a vacuum. So if you choose to ignore an issue however difficult or thorny it is, people will automatically, it's sticky and it's more memorable to assume it's something negative. Whereas I think what he's learning is just fill that vacuum with honesty. 
I also get the impression that when he talks about how his mum brought him up with that much softer side than his dad, without it being too much, because you have to be tough at times in his job, I think that's a really big part of the way he manages people. Yeah, I think that was a really telling phrase for anybody listening to this, whether you're a football fan, a Chelsea fan, or whether you're just listening to it for your own reasons of high performance outside of sport. I think that idea of just be a decent person, just treat people with respect, come in and offer value, take an interest in the human side of it is one of the great underlooked areas of high performance. This isn't just about relentlessly going after targets. It's about bringing people with you and doing it with humanity at the very heart of it. And if you're listening to this podcast and someone says to you in the not too distant future that Frank Lampard was lucky or Frank Lampard had an opportunity that others didn't have or Frank Lampard hasn't tried hard or he hasn't put the hours in, ask them to listen to this podcast because the one thing that I take away from this, Damien, above all else is the constant relentlessness to improve every single day. Yeah, I mean, right from a very early age, I think his dad's uh, messages however much he says that he veers away from that I think the the sheer discipline the determination the focus and relentlessness that his dad had given him at a young age is something that he's carrying with him uh, into his current career thanks ever so much it was a pleasure wasn't it oh it was a real treat thank you well Damien so nice to sit and listen once again to the things that Frank had to say um Oh, I just I just loved that hour and a bit in his company. It was special, wasn't it? It was very special, Jake. I think the fact that he came in and was having listened to the podcast himself, so he knew where we were going with it, but just his openness, his honesty, and his ability to articulate what high performance was for him was, uh, was a real privilege. And I love that, you know, this episode is with a, a Premier League football manager. The previous episode was with Michelle Moan, who came on the podcast, talked about her journey to being a successful business person and uh, with a real focus on the struggles. Um, and we've had loads of people getting in touch, sending us their thoughts. So first of all, another thank you for helping to turn this into a community. Damien and I don't just want this to be a podcast you listen to and then leave we really want you to feel like you're part of a family here and this is a message from Michael Deegan he says I've just heard a much needed quote that stopped me in my tracks by Michelle Moan on the high performance podcast only care about what your family and friends think about you the rest of the people can bugger off now I like that Damien because I think it's never been harder to be ourselves because it's never been easier for other people to have an opinion about us Absolutely, Jake. There's a quote that I'd like to share with people. It's called Dunbar's Number. And it basically goes back to the way that our brains can only cope with knowing at least 150 people. That's almost seen as the maximum that we can associate with. And I think that social media and things like that now exposes us to thousands of people that maybe don't understand our journey, our context, our own situation. And therefore, if we constantly find ourselves at the whims of people that aren't within our own tribe that understand our own dreams and our aspirations, we can find ourselves diluting what really matters to us to try and satisfy people that that we don't know we will never meet and that don't really truly understand us. It's like the old saying that you'd never take travel advice from someone that's never left home. Yeah. And it's almost like, why would you listen to somebody that doesn't quite understand the pressures that you're working on, the context, anything about your own backstory to therefore then make a judgment on you? And I think that's a message really from Damien and I to all of you listening to this. You know, have that group of people who you look to um, and if those people tell you something's not good, 
maybe you do have to really listen to it and think, yeah, okay, I trust what you say and, and I have to, you know, accepting criticism is a really important thing. You can't live in a world where you don't take criticism, but it's just who you take it from. There's an old quote from a guy I met many years ago called Angelo Dundee, a famous boxing coach who used to urge his fighters, he'd say, always have a look at who's in your dressing room when you lose because anyone can come in when you win. It's the people who are still stood next to you when you've lost that, that are the ones that are coming with you on that journey. Listen, mate, thank you very much, Damien. And uh, while we're thanking people, a big thank you, of course, to Lotus Cars. Please check them out on social media at Lotus Cars. Quite simply, this podcast you've just listened to would not happen without Lotus, so let's send them some love. Um, a quick reminder, as always, you can find us across social media. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can see unseen clips and extended interviews with our guests. A big thank you to Damien, of course. A big thanks to Finn Ryan at Rethink Audio for his hard work with the podcast. A huge thanks to Lotus Cars. But as always, the biggest thanks goes to you. Thanks for backing us. Thanks for coming with us on the journey. And thanks for being part of the high performance family. See you for another episode very soon. Have a great day.